Thanks for listening to the Light Church Podcast. This sermon was recorded in Encinitas, California. We pray that the Lord would speak to you through His Word. For more information, you can visit our website, lightsandiego.com. Today uh, is, honestly, I'm so excited because we're talking about prayer, and that is, that's something that if I could just give my life to, it would be prayer. Um, the reality is, is you don't, you don't ever graduate past prayer. That is something that as a follower, as apprentice of Jesus, we do, and, and really all of life is meant to be prayer, because prayer is intimacy, communion, and what the mystics called union with God. That's the goal, is to become so like Christ that we're almost like, you can't even tell the difference. And so we're meant to be drawn into intimacy and relationship with God in such a way, and prayer is the vehicle to that, but that's also the way, not only that we get there, but that is what it is. It's this constant communion conversation with God. So this is what it's all about, is prayer. And so I love what we're going to be talking about, and I love that the disciples, when they were looking at Jesus, they, in Luke 11, came up to him and they said, hey, Jesus, teach us how to pray. And then in Matthew's account, uh, this is where Jesus, and he does this in Luke as well, I like Matthew's account, where he then goes into the Lord's Prayer. The Catholics call this the Our Father, which I love based off what we're going to talk about. So Matthew 6, 9 through 13, Jesus then, when they asked that question, he said, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now, if you're anything like me, and my assumption is that you are, prayer is actually not that easy. I think there's something where, like, there are people who are really great at praying, um, but then there's, like, the rest of us, and it's pretty difficult. We realize there's this wide gap between the experience that we have in prayer and then Jesus' audacious claims about prayer. Here's some of the things that Jesus says in Luke's gospel. He says, ask and it will be open. Seek and you will find. Mark says, for I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, it'll be given to you. John says, whatever you ask in my name, if you ask anything in my name, and then he says later, if you remain in me and I remain in you, you can ask and it'll be given to you. Matthew then says, if you believe, you will receive. And then later the Sermon on the Mount, he says, if then you who are evil know how to give good gifts, how much more than your father who's perfect knows how to give the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so when I read passages like this, honestly, I would be on my knees all the time if I believed it. These passages make me like want to do anything but, I, I only want to pray when I read these things. But pastorally, as I sit down with people and in my own life experience, they don't do that to me. And I think that what happens is our experience in prayer quickly exposes the wide gap between these claims and our actual experience in practice. And what ends up happening is that we, we see what Jesus tells us. It doesn't work, and so we experience disappointment and disillusionment. Or we know it's really good for us, but it's kind of like eating healthy and going to the gym. We don't want to do that. You know, it just takes too much work. Or we experience shame because we read these claims and we're not getting the return on investment that Jesus is promising. And so we're, we're kind of assuming that maybe there's something wrong with us and therefore I'm the problem and so there's shame. And so prayer, which was meant to be this place of power, internal transformation and external transformation in the world around us actually becomes a place of duty, disillusionment, and shame. I think, honestly, um, I also 
think this, where I'm like, man, I, I think I just don't love God enough. You guys had that thought? We're like, man, if I, if I loved God more, I'd pray more. If I loved God more, I would read my Bible more. I, I would maybe join like three open tables. I'd be really into it, right? If I only loved God more, then that would change everything. But here's the reality. I think that the, it's actually twisted. See, it's not so much that we need to muster up the strength to love God more. I think what we need is a revelation of how much God has loved us, and that'll change everything. There's this beautiful mystery that God desires to know us and be known by us. And I think if we were to recognize that, prayer would flow out of us. And so in four weeks, talking about prayer, and, and I think there's a lot of hindrances to prayer, and so these four weeks are going to kind of be counterformative ways that we can go against these hindrances. So last week, the kind of um, hindrance to prayer was hurry. And so Benji taught, and it was, it was to be still. It was a posture. How do we be still before the Lord? And that's how we can kind of go against hurry. Today, we're going to be talking about how we have a distorted view of God. That distorted view of God affects our prayer life, and I think the counterformative way of doing things, the counterpractice is adoration, to adore God, to look at him, to stare at him. Um, the next, next week is going to be on theology. Like, do my prayers matter? If God knows what's going to happen, if it's all going to happen the way it's supposed to happen, then why pray? Like, what's the point? And so we're going to talk about the counterpractice's intercession. And then in two more weeks, we're going to talk about how uh, we, we bring, like, this kind of polished, perfect thing in prayer, and then we're disappointed when we don't get things, the outcomes that we want. And so we're going to talk about persistence. And so today, we're going to talk about how we have a distorted view of God. Now, Jesus obviously, like, had a perfect relationship with God, but I think outside of Jesus, I think if I were to look at someone in the Bible who would have a robust vision of who God is, I would say it's Moses. And so Exodus 33, we see Moses, and this is a pretty mind-blowing passage. So Exodus 33, starting in verse 7, it says, Now Moses used to take a tent and pitch it outside the camp some distance away, calling it the tent of meeting. Anyone inquiring of the Lord would go to the tent of meeting outside of the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people rose and stood at the entrances of their own tents, watching Moses until he entered the tent. As Moses went into the tent, the pillar of cloud would come down and stay at the entrance while the Lord spoke with Moses. Whenever the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, they all stood and worshipped, each at the entrance of their own tent. And then verse 11, the Lord would speak to Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend. Drop down to verse 18. Moses is now having a dialogue with God, and he says, God, show me your glory. Show me your power. Show me your majesty. Show me your holiness. Show me your otherness. Show me how awesome you are. In verse 19, the Lord said, I will cause my goodness to pass in front of you. I'll proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I'll have mercy on whom I'll have mercy. I'll have compassion on whom I'll have compassion. But... He said, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. Is that a bit confusing? Wasn't he just talking to him face to face like a friend? And you're like, what's going on here? Well, here's, this, this is the tension that we're introduced to with Moses, is that God likes to be intimate. He likes to be in relationship and proximate and close. And yet there's this something about God that he says, but I'm too holy. I'm too other. I'm too pure. I'm too perfect that you can't actually see me face to face. But you're, so before, he's talking to him like a friend, but then right here he says, show me your glory. He wants to see all of who God is. God's kind of been holding back a little bit. And God's like, you can't actually see all of that. You will simply just cease to exist. 
so you can't see me. And so you have this tension. This is the tension that we live in when we, when we come to God, is that he's intimate and close and relational, and yet he's holy and other. We see this again in Exodus 3. So if we were to flip backwards. Now, Moses is walking these paths as a shepherd, and he's walked these paths hundreds of times. I mean, he, he might have done this yesterday. He probably still had the dust caked on his toes from the previous hike. And as he's walking, there's this burning bush, but it's not consumed. And so verse 4, when the Lord saw that he had gone over to look at this burning bush, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. So you hear like God's like, Moses, come here. Come check this out. Come near, Moses. But then verse 5, he says, don't come any closer. Take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy ground. And I always think like, is that like a weird like God has like a foot thing, like I don't know what's going on, like what's with taking your sandals off. And I think it's also interesting that, that God's like, hey, Moses, come near. And he's like, whoa, 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 back off. Isn't that a bit confusing? Like we, we come here and you're like kind of like the, I don't know, God, like do I go? What do I do? And so it's like this really interesting thing where God is kind of having him do this dance. He's like, I want you to come near. Whoa, whoa, whoa don't get too close. Okay, but take off your dusty, musty, sheep, poop, crusty rainbows and take those off because I want to be near to you. Because what he's saying is that there's separation between you and my holiness, and I want to be close to you, but don't, be, don't come too close. And it feels like this, this tension. And there's this tension, there's this gap that we don't know how to sit in. It's the gap of the fact that God wants to be near to us. He wants to be known by us. He wants to be close to us. He wants to be intimate in a face-to-face friendship-type relationship, and yet he also wants us to realize and recognize and revere that he is holy and that he is other. God is less like us than he is like us, and we're made in his image because he's that other. He's that holy. And we, in our culture, like the idea of God being like knowable kind of like like rolls out the tongue. We're like, yeah, yeah, God's cool. Jesus is my homeboy. I definitely had that shirt in high school that said Jesus is my homeboy. You know, so we, we love like God is relational. We love those things. We talk to people, but God is love. And that is so true. We have a very low view of God as holy. God is perfect. God is pure. God is other. And so we're introduced to this tension. In ancient Israel, no one would have doubted the existence of God. We wrestle with that, but for them, there was this giant smoke cloud that would just land on top of this tent, or it would lead them, and it'd be a pillar of fire. And so if someone were like, I don't know, like, is this Yahweh guy, like, pretty, is he real? They'd be like, he's the plume of smoke. Like, no one questioned if God was real, but they knew God was holy, They knew that he was powerful. You see, these Jewish people, they grew up on the temple, and the temple, the prayer kind of center of of Judaism, was rooted in the Exodus story. And so they knew God as cloud and fire. He was the God of animal sacrifices and purity. He was the God who parted seas and rivers. He was the God who brought fire down from heaven. He was the God that said words and simultaneously things that didn't exist started to exist. He was the God of 10 plagues. He was the God of floods. He was mighty. He was powerful. He was just. He was revered. He was honored, but was he knowable? And that was the question. This holy, awesome God who's in this pillar of smoke and fire, the one that parted the seas, can we know him? And they didn't think so. So there's something about Jesus' prayer 
that the disciples who didn't know God was that knowable noticed. And so they came up to him and they said, Jesus, would you teach us how to pray? There's something different about how you pray. Now I read that and I'm like, yeah, I don't really know how to pray that well. So like, I love that Jesus is going to teach us how to pray because I don't know, I don't pray as often as I would like. These guys prayed all the time. They, they were part of the Jewish uh, religion, which means they prayed in the morning, they prayed in the evening, they prayed at, uh, before they went to bed, they prayed the Shema, which was like all of the time. They were always praying. So these guys knew how to pray. Jesus wasn't telling them that they need to pray more or pray harder. He was telling them pray differently. And I wonder if that's for any of us tonight. That maybe it's not you need to pray more. Maybe it's not you need to pray harder with like more guts. But you just need to pray differently. Because they noticed that Jesus prayed differently. See, if I were around Jesus, I would have said, like, Jesus, can you teach me how to walk on water? Surfing would be so much easier, you know? Can you teach me how to, like, cast out demons? That sounds so cool and scary. Can you teach me how to heal people? Because, like, what's, we don't need hospitals, you know? Like, could you teach me these things? And yet, the disciples didn't ask any of those things. They asked, would you teach us to pray? They recognized that all of those things that Jesus did flowed from this intimate kind of relationship, this type of prayer that Jesus had with God. Jesus, so uh, Tyler Staten in his book, Praying Like Monks, Living Like Fools, says Jesus did nothing to diminish the reverence, nothing to minimize the power of God. Jesus made that powerful God knowable. And I think that we have a hindrance to prayer because we don't necessarily have a high view of God. Teach us to pray. That's our question. To this Jesus who makes this holy God knowable, teach us to pray. And so when Jesus answers, he starts off with this, Father. You want to learn how to pray? Start with Father. Father. This God, the one that's, that's in majesty and might, the one that's power and, and purity, the one that's holy and honorable, has a welcoming heart towards you. This God that is, that is holy and other has good intentions for you. He isn't just knowable, he is your father. Now, if you were a first century Jew, this would have been scandalous. We like this. This like makes us feel cozy a little bit. We're like, yeah, of course, God's father. For them, they killed Jesus for this. John 5, it says, my father is always at work to this very day. I too am working. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father. This was a scandal. God was powerful, but he wasn't that knowable. And then Jesus says, no, he's absolutely knowable. Jesus' term for God is Abba. Abba, when he prayed, he said Abba. It's this Aramaic term for father. New Testament scholar Joachim Jeremiah argues that there is not a single example of the use of Abba as an address to God in the whole Jewish literature. Jesus was the only one because it was, you don't do that. And so Jesus starts, if he's like, if you want to learn how to pray, you need to start by healing your image of who God is. And this makes sense because the image of God is exactly where the serpent in the garden started. So he wants to heal our image because our image was warped when Adam and Eve were in the garden, the 
the perception that, that the, the serpent gave them was that he is not trustworthy. And I think that's exactly what's done for every last one of us is that our image of God is warped and twisted by the very same temptation. I think all of our failures to pray come back to this one thing. We have a distorted view of God. Because if we were to actually grasp the fact that God loves us, if we were to actually grasp that God is for us, he has good intentions for us, he is near to us, wouldn't we pray all the time? But we all have a distorted view. We might mentally ascend to a view where we say, yes, God, you are. But the reality is the lived atheism is that we don't pray because we don't believe it. And so you see this in Genesis 2. In Genesis 2, verse 15, it says, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden. And it continues on. Everything in Genesis 2, while they're in the garden, while they're in the presence of God, says, the Lord God. Now, in Hebrew, that's, that's Yahweh Elohim. Yahweh was the personal name for God. Yahweh Elohim. Elohim was just kind of a generic God name, but Yahweh Elohim. And then you go to Genesis 3. It says, now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God, not the Lord God, did Elohim. They took, he took out the personal aspect. Did God really say, you must not eat of any tree in the garden? If you notice that the serpent demoted God from this generous and personal God to a stingy dictator in the sky. Because God had said, everything is yours, just don't eat this one thing. But it's this lavish, generous God who is personal and close, and you can know him. And then the serpent comes in, he says, no, 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 he, just, he says you can't eat that. And so he takes his generous, personal God, and he makes him the stingy dictator that's distant. He doesn't say Yahweh Elohim, he just says Elohim. And he says, okay, yeah, your God might be powerful, sure, but he's unknowable, and he's definitely untrustable. I think we walk around with that same kind of suspicion of who God is. Maybe he's powerful, maybe, but he's not really knowable and he's not really trustable. And then throughout the rest of the Bible and throughout Jewish history, they only spoke of God as Elohim. They never called him Yahweh. So he wasn't personal anymore. Respectful, absolutely, but distant and not personal. It's like calling someone by their title. It's calling someone doctor instead of Christina. Or calling them Sir instead of Jake, or Trisha, my wife, calling me Pastor Stevie instead of calling me the most handsome man in the entire world. <laughs> Which she does all the time. She calls me that. Jesus called God Abba. We don't have an equivalent in English today. Which is why, in many cases, if you guys were to look at your Bibles, um, there's multiple times where, where, where Jesus is referring to God as Abba, and that Aramaic phrase sneaks through untranslated because they knew that a translation of the word would just diminish its power and its beauty. And so it goes untranslated because we don't have a word for it. it, it like, probably the best thing that we have is data. Data. But, the, but it kind of still falls short because we grow out of data. You, we mature out of it. So you see, my son Callum, um, he's not speaking yet, but when he does, data will be his first word. Um, I'm telling him, like, all the time, like, say data, like, not, not mama, like, just data, you know? Say that first, right? That'd be awesome. If he was running around and he was just like, dada, dada, and you're just like, that would be so cute. But if he comes home from college at 18 calling me dada, I'm calling a therapist, Right? Like, you grow out. It's just weird. At some point, you grow out of it. Abba wasn't like that. 
Abba, you don't grow out of. So that's why we don't have an equivalent. It was just this beautiful form of endearment for all ages. And so he calls him Abba. And I kind of understand a little bit now, becoming a new father, what it's like to have a father's heart. So the thing is, is, is if you have kids, you know they just, they just steal from you. They just take your sleep. They take your food. They take your time. They poop on you. They pee on you. They throw up on you multiple times in one day. They constantly make you late to things. I was at a wedding yesterday, and Trisha was in the wedding, and so I was just, it was just Callum and I. It was just boys' time. And I was so pumped. I was like, this is guy's time. This is going to be awesome. And so we, we were playing, and he didn't want to play. And so I tried to rock him to sleep, and he didn't want to sleep. And so I was holding him, but he didn't want to be held. And I put him down. He didn't want to be put down. So I was like, what do you want? And so I fed him, and then he like still wasn't having it. And so it was just so difficult. Finally, I got him to go to sleep, and I threw him down in the crib, which was huge. I turned the monitor volume all the way up, and I jumped in the shower. No one showers faster than a parent when their kid is sleeping. And like, there's no time for soap. It is just rinse and repeat and get out, right? Because as soon as he wakes up, I have to be there for him. Here's just something about as a father that like, I want my kid to know I am there, I am present. And so there's something about me that I want to be there. But I've also noticed that, you know, we were almost late to the wedding. I mean, he is just like so, like there's such an inconvenience with him and I love him so much. And he could be screaming in my face, and I could have poop all over me. And with authenticity, I would look at him and say, I love you so much. So there's something about a mystery that's written into the heart of a parent. It's love. It's, it's this uncontrollable love for this person that just mostly inconveniences you. And I think if we're made in the image of God, which I believe that we are, then this mysterious heart of a father that lives in me points to one place. The one who promises to love me with an everlasting love that I can't seem to shake no matter how hard I try. See, the priest called him Elohim, but Jesus called him Abba. And you see, we can make a mess of our lives as much as we like. We can incessantly lose the plot of the only true story. We can choose to ignore everything that God tells us that will lead to a life of flourishing, and then we can blame him for all sorts of things that we, he had nothing to do with, and yet there's still going to be this strange affection in his heart for you and for me. Renero uh, Cancela Mesa says that if the written word of the Bible changed into a spoken word and became one single voice, that voice, more powerful than the roaring of the seas, would cry out, the Father loves you. And so it's no wonder that the image of the Father has been so warped and distorted by so many earthly fathers who have abused the title. I mean, can you guys actually imagine what's at stake if we could grasp the Father's love for us? I feel like we would be living differently. And so Jesus starts here, God is Father. And the thing is, is when we get God as Father appropriate, when we, when we start to see him rightly, it has the inverse effect where we begin to see ourselves rightly as well. Because if he's Father, then I'm son and your daughter. And we're, we're loved by him with an unshakable affection. So when we can see God rightly, we can see ourselves rightly, and we have to start there. And I'm also... I'm also very aware of the fact 
that in my story and in so many other stories that we have tainted views of a father. I realize that even as we talk about God as father, some of you guys have walls that are immediately built up because you're like, well, my father did this. My father left. My father abandoned. My father... And so to see God as father honestly just brings up a lot of anxiety. You can feel it in your body because that's not a good image for you. And and what I would say is, is... Be patient on yourself and graceful on yourself. Know that it's a journey. So don't try to force anything on, but I do believe that God wants to restore that image because our earthly fathers don't tell us who our heavenly father is. It's the other way around. And and I'm, I'm just curious about the fact that there's a unique gravity to the success or failures of our fathers. And I think that that's actually poignant. I think that points out to the fact that God as a father, gave us this model. And when that model fails, we feel it. And I think we feel it because God truly is a father. And so even through our failure, even through that disappointment, we can turn our gaze to God and see him even more appropriately as he is. And so if you're in here and you just have like a really broken relationship and image of God, can I just pause for one second, just pray for you before we move on? Um, Let's just pray real quick. So Lord, I, I just, I'm so mindful of the fact that I can talk about you as our father, that we can read scriptures, we can read about Jesus who calls you father, and yet um, you're the one that reveals your heart. You're the one that heals our minds and our hearts, God. And so I just ask, Holy Spirit, would you just begin to do a work in our lives and in our minds to heal and restore that image God, would you speak those words that you spoke even over Jesus at his baptism, that this is my beloved in whom I am well pleased and that I love so much. God, I just pray that you would heal and restore that image. And so God, would you do that right now? Only you can do that. And we ask that you just move in a way that we can't. We pray this in your name. Amen. So this father... This father is not like me taking a long shower using soap and is unresponsive. This is a father that Jesus continues and says is in heaven. Now, I don't know what your guys' image is of heaven, but I, I often think of it. I used to think of it. Now, I have a little bit of a different picture of it, but it was always like this far off place. Heaven is in the clouds. There are babies with diapers and harps. And like Valentine's Day is coming up and that's just the image, right? Like it just sticks with my mind. And so I always kind of would read this and I'm like, okay, cool. Like you're our father and like I can get behind that. But like in heaven, like you're so far away. But actually the, the, the way that this is translated is the word heaven is oranos in the Greek, which is actually plural. So it means the heavens, but it's actually better translated as the air. So when we read this in our English translation, we read this as like, you're distant, you're far away, you're in heaven way out there, but this is actually better translated, our father in the air, which says the exact opposite. Our father who is in the air, the air that you breathe, the air that embraces your skin, the air that blows on your face, the air and the oxygen that's inside your blood and your body, he is closer to you than you are to yourself. And so this is saying our father who is so close, closer than the air. John Mark Comer says that the damage done by thinking of heaven as this far off place in the future, rather than thinking about heaven in the present, can't be put into words. Most of us don't feel close to God all the time, but we are. 
This feeling that most people have of separation from God is a legitimate, valid feeling, but I think it's a mental and emotional illusion created by distraction and discorded loves. St. Augustine says, God is the reality whose center is everywhere, but whose circumference is nowhere. God does not know how to be absent. I love that. I love what John Mark said, that that's a legitimate, valid feeling. We feel distant from God sometimes, but it is an illusion created by our distraction, discord, and loves. Because the reality is we're blinded due to our broken image of God, to our disappointment, our hurry and busyness, or our longing for other things. They blind us from God's presence. And so this is just beautiful to realize that as we pray this, we can remind ourselves, God, you are near. I may not feel it, I may be blinded, but you are so close. And then Jesus continues, says, our Father in heaven, hallowed. Hallowed. We should use that word more, you know? Like hallowed day. I don't know. Walk into Starbucks. Greet people that way. Hallowed is a weird word. We don't use that. But here's what it means. It means to to make something holy or to declare it as holy, as other, as separate, as unique, that there's no one greater, there's no one like him. So, but here's the question, right? What Jesus is teaching us is that as we go into prayer is to say, hey, God, like you tell God how holy he is. Does that feel weird to you? Like, why does God need us to tell him how awesome he is? Does he just like want to like hear that? Does he like, just tell me how great I am? Is this kind of the same thing that I do to Trisha when I like tell her how beautiful she is before I ask her to go hang out with the boys? Like I'm like buttering her up. Are we buttering God up because we know that we have some asks coming his way? Or is this like some well-intentioned manipulation of like, God, you're really cool, but like I would like a home. I don't know. Like what are we doing? Is this what's going on? But it's actually the opposite. See, it's not about us buttering God up. Tyler Staten says subconsciously, I tend to believe the world is a neutral place, and it is not. The world is a contested place where almost always a name other than Jesus is being worshipped. When you and I open our mouths and begin to pray, almost certainly another name is being hallowed in our hearts. The names of accomplishment, success, productivity, approval from another person, comfort, easy execution of our own plans, self-will and all its destructive varieties. When we pray, we step out of the fundamental reality of the world and into the fundamental reality of God. So we must begin by inviting God to reorder our affections. So hallowing God's name, when we pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. It's not for God, it's for us. It's the invitation of God right now. I think that this is the most important. Circumstantially, this is front of mind. But God, I need to reorder that and I need to see you at the top. Actually, I need to see you in everything. And so when we hollow God's name, we step away from the world that says X, Y, and Z is what you need to be happy. And we just get to say, no, God, you are what I need to be happy. So when we come to God only with our shopping list, which is not bad to come to God with, with requests. He invites us to do that. But when we only come with requests, it shows that we're searching for our happiness still in things that are outside of God. God, I need this in order to be happy. And we walk around with disappointment when those things don't happen because, again, we are searching for happiness outside of God himself. And so to hallow his name is to step into this reality that God is the realest thing. And there are many ways to hallow God's name. 
It could be like just naming off his character. God, you are holy. God, you are provider. God, you are good. God, you are love. You can go through a list of things that are just true of God's character just so you can remember who you're talking to. You could go through gratitude you, and you, just to savor God's blessings, big or small, minuscule or massive, where you can just say, God, thank you for my single origin cup of coffee this morning. It was wonderful. But thank you also for our open table and, and our community. Thank you, God, for, for the, the sun that's out. Thank you for the days that are getting longer. Thank you for good surf. I don't know, like, thank him for anything. That's a good way to reset our heart. Another way is singing, which... Um, is, is praying twice because a song is someone else's prayers and as you sing it, you're just praying their prayers. You're praying twice. And as we praise God, it joins your head and your heart and your mind and your emotions together. These are just a couple ways that if you wanna just practice hallowing God's name, then we can do that. John Tyson, a pastor in New York says, unless you break the stronghold of false images of God in your mind, you will never be drawn to prayer. The angels have been locked in a room with God for thousands of years, and they still haven't got past the word holy. Holy, holy, holy. So if you're bored with God, and this is going to sting, you may be the person who's boring. Or it could just be that you are distracted by trivia in our culture. When you break through that boredom, you will be drawn to the glory of who God really is. And again, I think there's so little prayer because we have such a small view of God. And so to go into that passage that John Tyson was just talking about, Revelation 4, I want to read just a little bit of it. It says, um, th- this is John being brought into this vision of the throne room. And it's, just, it's kind of the literature where it's really illustrative and a lot of imagery, but um, it's so, it's beautiful. In the center, around the throne were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes, Have you read that and just thought like angels are creepy? Just like an eyeball creature. And then you go down to verse 8 and it just says day and night they never stop singing holy, holy, holy. These eyeball creatures are just screaming holy. Because in in this, back then they, they didn't have exclamation points, they didn't have fire emojis, right? They couldn't emphasize these things except for through repetition. So three times they're just screaming holy. These eyeball angel floating things are just screaming holy. It's a horror movie. It's, it's, honestly, you think about it, and you're like, this is crazy. So you're like, what's up with the creepy eyeball angels? And that's a really great question. See, God created all creatures, and he gave fish gills so that they could breathe underwater. He gave sloths, like, just these incredible toenails so that they can hang upside down for hours on end. So what's up with them being covered with eyes? And I think it's because God wants them to see. I think God wants them to behold. God wants them to adore. God wants them to stare at him. There's this universal truth that we become like what we behold or we adjust to what we adore. So he gave them a ton of eyes so that they could not miss him. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says that, and we with, who with unveiled faces contemplate or gaze at or stare at the Lord's glory are being transformed. The word is metamorpho. It's a, it's, it's a caterpillar becoming a butterfly into his image with ever-increasing glory which comes from the Lord who is 
the Spirit. See, the core to change in our lives is to look at God, to stand in the tension between Father and Holy, intimate and personal and yet other and revered, to stand in that gap and to stare at him as he is by adoring him, we are changed because we are shaped by what we intake. I mean, think about people who just constantly watch just angry political news and they're angry people or people who are constantly scrolling through Zillow trying to find a house and they're just constantly discontent. And I'm speaking for a friend, not myself personally. Or an online store, right? Or that Instagram account of the person who just projects to have it all. We will carry around discontent, envy, comparison, and depression in our bodies if we do that. Or if we're always watching shows that are just like highlighting lust and sexualization, we will be addicted and we'll find ourselves lustful. We'll walk around with those things because we're being formed. Scripture says that the eye is the lamp to the body. Now that angel has a lot of lamps, and he's just taking in all the time. Hui Hui Tan, a Singapore writer, says, you are what your mind looks at. You are what you contemplate. We become what we gaze at, whether it's the TV or the Trinity. And this comes down to the fact that God built into our bodies the ability to be shaped. We have mirror neurons. And, and, and so this is what I literally see with, with Callum right now. If I want Callum to smile, I just smile at him and he smiles back. It's like actually the best If I want him to laugh, I just laugh at him and he laughs back at me. He's just mimicking me because that's what he does. And so if he wants, if I want to be a joyful baby, I'd be a joyful person because he is imitating me, becoming like me as he stares at me. Dr. Andrew Newberg in his book, How God Changes Your Brain, he's a secular neuroscientist. He says this, if you contemplate God long enough, something surprising happens in the brain. Neural functions begin to change. We have a nervous system that actively participates in its own neural construction, something we do not see in other animal brains. Boiling this down, God baked into our wiring as humans, made in his image, that what we stare at, if we stare at God, we become like God. If we think about him, if we set our mind on things above, as Paul writes, we become more like God. The converse is also true. If we don't stare at God and we stare at other things, or if we stare at God but we see him as this angry, authoritative, never proud, always wanting more from us, this changes our brains too. Newberg argues that this has the similar effect of PTSD. If we view God as this angry God up in the sky, it has the same effect as PTSD in the wiring of our brain. Only when we contemplate God as Jesus teaches us, as Father, close to us, loving us, will our lives be changed and we will exude the fruit of the Spirit, which is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, self-control. See, this point is also poignant. Bishop William Tempe, I love this. He says that if we have a wrong view of God, the more religious we get, the worse we become. I mean, think about that. If we're shaped by the God that we're staring at and we have a wrong view of God, an angry God, and we become more and more angry the more and more religious we get. But if we can see God, if we can get it right, if we can adore him and see him as father and holy, if we can stand in the tension and actually contemplate who God is, we will become loving people to the world around us. And this is why Jesus wanted us to start with prayer as adoring God. 
to look at Jesus, to see God as he is, high and lifted up, holy and yet close. I'm gonna invite the band to come on up. So this is of utmost importance. I think, again, the main reason why prayer is so difficult for us is because we have a hard time seeing God as he is. And so would you guys mind standing with me? I'd, lead, I'd, like, I'd like to lead us through a little time of prayer before we dive into some worship. And if you guys could close your eyes, mostly just so you can focus. And as you close your eyes, as best as you can, in your mind, in your imagination, just picture the face of God. Picture the Lord and pay attention to a couple things. I know it's probably hard to imagine what God looks like. But as you imagine God, is he smiling? Like, what's his posture towards you? What's his expression? Does he seem to be pleased with you or does he seem to be upset with you and has a scowl on his face? Where is God to you? Is he close to you? Is he hugging you? Is his arm on your shoulder? Or is he all the way across the room? Is his back turned towards you? See, Jesus wanted to heal our image of God first and foremost. And so just with your eyes closed, and maybe you can just kind of keep trying to imagine God. I just want to read some things that Scripture says is true of God's nature. and Just let these wash over you. And if there's anything that even stands out, maybe hold on to that. The Bible talks about how God is merciful. He's long-suffering. He's patient. He's faithful and compassionate. He's jealous for you. He's an all-consuming fire. He is love. He is rich to all who call upon his name, not just in the bare minimum provision, but he is generous. He's overflowing in abundance towards those who call out to him. The Bible says he's kind. He is all-knowing. He is all-powerful. He's present everywhere. God is eternal. He is the alpha and the omega. He is the beginning and the end. It also says that he's meek and humble. He's just and righteous. He is uncreated. He has no beginning. He is eternally powerful. He is eternally wise. He is eternally good. He's beautiful. And in light of that, before we dive into worship, I just want to pray one more time. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Amen. Let's adore God together. Let's look at him. Let's worship him. And as we behold him, may we become like him. Let's worship him. 
Thanks for listening to the Light Church Podcast. This sermon was recorded in Encinitas, California. We pray that the Lord would speak to you through His Word. For more information, you can visit our website, lightsandiego.com. Thank you.